Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. A little bit of a truncated episode this week. Uh, I do have a ton on my plate right now, but I wanted to make sure we put out some content for you guys. I do have a strategy hand that I want to get to. I think it's pretty good. I also want to touch on a few interesting poker topics that have been developing of late. Unfortunately, I'm very, very strapped for time uh, to get this done, so this episode will turn out to be a bit shorter than you guys are used to, and then we'll be back to our normal length of podcast next week. Hope that's okay. Appreciate all the love on Twitter, at Clayton Comic, all of your comments and reviews on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes and everywhere else that you have been saying all the nice things about me and about the work that I'm doing for TPE. Now let's talk about topic number one, which is this heads up for roles (laughs) with Daniel and Doug. It looks like it actually will happen. I'm excited. I think it will be great publicity for the game. I think it will get people talking. And I think that Daniel is basically drawing dead if he plays no limit hold'em heads up versus Doug. I know that Doug doesn't play every single day anymore, but Daniel's not out here playing uh, (laughs) heads up no limit every day either, and it's such a different game from what Daniel is used to playing. Uh, Obviously, these two guys have had a big problem with each other for a very long time. Doug has built half his career off of attacking Daniel at every possible turn, which has been a lot of entertainment. Uh, Many, many hours of entertainment on Doug's YouTube page have derived from all of the uh, insults and videos that he's made. But my favorite, if we can talk about, you know, Doug versus Daniel over the years, was the, uh, the billboard right outside the Rio. You could see it for miles on your way to play in the World Series of Poker, this giant, huge billboard that said, more rake is better. I think some people saw pictures of this billboard on <laughs> on Twitter or Instagram and thought that it had been doctored or somehow photoshopped, but no, that was a real thing that he did, and obviously it refers to when Daniel was the spokesperson for Poker Stars and being paid quite handsomely to represent them and their interests, Daniel claimed that the proposed increase in rake would ultimately benefit the professional players. Uh, Obviously, that was a silly thing for Daniel to say and clearly untrue. Uh, A lot of people have taken this opportunity to reinvigorate hatred against Daniel Negreanu. And, you know, my journey with him has been a little bit different. I used to be more annoyed with Daniel before I knew him. Like when I would see him on TV and kind of being nice to players, but really just trying to get a read and some of his antics I thought were 
in poor taste, I guess. Namely, there was one many, many years ago. It's not even on anymore, but there was a show called the PPT. It was kind of a spinoff of the World Poker Tour. It was the professional poker tour. They only did one season of it. And Daniel made a comment to a player called Minneapolis Jim Meehan, who is, I believe, no longer with us. But if he is with us, he's certainly not playing poker anymore. Minneapolis Jim was known for a lot of things. One of them was being a kind of a DJ and an alcoholic. And Daniel was pretty rude to him in one episode of the PPT. And when Daniel busted him, he said something like, drinks at the bar on me after this or something like that, which, you know, if you know Daniel, he's he's not really one to talk about drinking. He practices a vegan lifestyle and is not really a big drinker. So obviously that was just one final needle, which I thought was in poor taste. If it was intended the way I thought the way I took it when I watched the episode. Now, of course, a show like the PPT was heavily edited and they may have had some other things that were said that they left out. But to me, this one made Daniel look bad and other things that he had done on TV had rubbed me the wrong way. Now, as I've gotten to know him over the years, uh, and certainly he's not one of my closest friends or anything, but I do have something of a relationship with him. I see another side of Daniel that... Maybe not everyone gets to see, but he's an extremely loving and charitable person. That really becomes evident if you attend any of the events that he hosts along with Matt Stout and the CSOP. Uh, Daniel is extremely generous. He has a lot of money and he's not afraid to share it with people in need. And I'm talking about real need like St. Jude's or you know, epilepsy research, things like that. And so I've been to a number of these events and run into Daniel at them. And I've seen firsthand him donating large amounts of money to the cause. So that does not excuse all of the bad things he's done in his life. But I think it's important that if you're going to sit in judgment of another human being, you should probably consider both the good and the bad. Uh, Now on her wonderful and new relatively new podcast called The Rake, Jamie Kerstetter talks about, and she doesn't go into great detail, but she talks about how Daniel had her removed from being a commentator on an event that he was a part of. I don't know if it was with GG Poker or, you know, she didn't really say, so I don't want to speculate whether it was that or, or something that maybe Daniel just had a lot of leverage about who would be on the mic. Now, Jamie's been awfully critical of Daniel over the years, and Daniel has, for his part, given us all all a lot to criticize. Uh, But, you know, if she... I have no reason to believe that Jamie would make this story up, but apparently Daniel saw that Jamie was going to be doing commentary, and basically he took money out out of her pocket by saying, no, you're not going to be doing commentary for this event. Now, to me, it reminds me of Hollywood, You know, so if I have a part in a movie with, let's say, I don't know who's the, who's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, let's say Brad Pitt, right? And for whatever reason, Brad Pitt and I have had beef. If he wants to go to the director and say, Hey, you see that guy that you have playing police officer number four? Yeah, he's got to go. I don't like that guy. You can rest assured that I will be off the set before lunch. So the same thing obviously happens in televised poker and broadcast poker, streamed poker, whatever you want to call it. The players that 
the networks consider money are the most famous players, which also generally happen to be the wealthiest players, which typically tend to be some of the better players. I don't say the best players because I think many of the best players don't get a lot of camera time because they're no fun to watch because they don't have any type of personality to speak of because they're just math nerds. And I think when Negreanu talks about robots and math nerds, he's right. There are too many of those on the televised version of the game. So yeah, about that, he, he makes a good point. Uh, Jamie's not one of those nerds. I mean, she's one of the funniest people in poker and this is a professional comedian saying that she's also extremely talented, very tough to play against. And uh, there's no reason why anyone would say, no, we don't want Jamie to do commentary. She's actually probably on my short list. If I were producing a poker show, Jamie Kerstetter would be one of the first people that I would want to ask, would you like to do commentary for this? But it does kind of illustrate when a few people at the very top of a profession have lots and lots of power that there can be downsides to criticizing those people. And it sounds like in Jamie's case, her criticizing Daniel so publicly and openly over the years has come back to haunt her on at least one occasion where he was able to prevent her from getting work in the commentary booth. Now, first world problems to be sure, but as someone who has done my share of commentary and I know how hard it is to get those jobs, that story kind of made me a little sad when I heard it on Jamie's podcast, which, by the way, if you haven't heard it, it's called The Rake, and it's co-hosted by her and Marley Cordero. That's one thing. I wanted to comment on that because it did give me kind of a, a visceral reaction. Okay, next topic. Enough about those guys. Uh, let's get back to the, the world of the mortal. How about me? All right. Uh, I recently completed a month, basically a month of online poker. You guys know I had a good amount of success and I want to be honest about something. I actually took a loss in the World Series of Poker online this summer. Uh, I know that I was tweeting and sharing and making sure everybody knew every time I, I won. And I did have three small wins, either in $50 or $100 tournaments. I, it may have actually been four wins. Uh, none of those wins were worth more than five or $6,000. And I was playing on the days that I was playing in the WSOP online. I was playing, you know, probably on average 12 to 1500 per day. So although I had a few good caches at the end of the day, I ended up losing about 50% of, so my ROI for the, let's put it that way. My ROI for the, for the month of July was around 50%, which just goes to show how hard it is to make money in poker and how easy it is to maybe have people think you're doing better than you are. I know lots of players will tweet every time they make a final table, but what you don't see is all the nights that they spend, you know, getting killed. So what happened to me in my case? Well, you guys know that I have a extensive spreadsheet where I kind of keep track of all my stats and stuff. And one of the stats that I keep an eye on is what my percentage is when I'm all in for at least half my stack. So this can happen when you're very, very short in a tournament, or it can happen when you 
have a good stack, but you and another player have really good hands. For example, if I have pocket kings and I happen to run into aces, then in that particular all-in for at least half my stack, I'm only about 18% to win. So that's not good. But what I did find interesting is I had 25 times during the month that I was all in for at least half my stack and my average winning chances, so my pot equity in those, in, the, in all those hands was over 70%. It averaged to 70.1% or something like that, which is ridiculously high for that many all-ins. It means there were not so many coin flips and a lot more of me having the pair versus either one live overcard or a lower pair. So that happened a lot. And what's really crazy is I lost 19 of those 25 all-ins. Now, this is not to make an excuse for having a losing month. I mean, I only answer to myself anyway, so it's not like I have to make excuses. But if you talk about running bad for an extended period of time, I played well over 100 tournaments in July. I mean, I average four or five tables at a time when I play online on WSOP.com. I would play a lot more tables than that, by the way, except they have this ridiculous feature that I've never heard anyone else complain about, which makes me wonder if any of you know how I can fix it. But if you don't make a decision pre-flop in the first, I think, 10 seconds, your hand is folded and your time bank does not engage. I don't get this. I don't know why they would do it that way. But I, when I first started playing on the site, I was trying to do eight or 10 tables and it proved impossible because there are just too many times when it takes me more than 10 seconds to get to a pre-flop decision on one hand when maybe I'm thinking of a really tough decision on another hand. So for that reason alone, I had to decrease the number of tables that I would play all at once. But still, playing part-time, of course I didn't play every day in July. I was mostly playing just Friday through Sunday schedule. Um, that way avoiding kind of the high rollers that are a little bit out of my skill level and also just allowing for some type of work-life balance. But still, I managed to play, I think it was 109 tournaments and I kept track of as many of these big all-ins as I could. And it turns out that I was 70% on average and I lost, you know, look, almost all of them, like 80% of them. So uh, <laughs> that's pretty hard to do, but I did it. Which doesn't mean that I necessarily would have cashed in all of the tournaments had I had you know done better in those all-ins. That's just one stat that I look at. And I did fine in my coin flips and a little better than that in other spots. Like spots where I wasn't sure if I should bluff, but I chose to. It seemed like those worked out a little more often than they would on average. So, you know, everything kind of does even out. But these big all-ins were what really felt like they were killing me at least from the perspective of being the person experiencing all those bad beats. <laughs> but anyway, I'm not trying to complain about my luck. I know that I have run well above average in poker tournaments over my career. Uh, but I'm just trying to make the point that we think the long run is a lot shorter than the real long run is. So if you play 100 tournaments and you have a negative ROI, that might feel like, well, then I must be a losing player. But... Uh, this hasn't convinced me that I'm a losing player, which is probably nothing more than great news for all of the superior opponents who 
lick their chops when they see me approaching the table. All right, well, let's get to the strategy hand for this week. Uh, I think this one is kind of interesting. I think you guys will appreciate this one. Kind of late in a $10 or $11 ACR tournament, I thought this one was uh, kind of a fun hand to discuss. So we have Jack-9 in the big blind, and our stack is a little bit below average at 40000 the average is almost 50,000. Uh, the blinds are 325 and 650. You know, you guys know I love these ACR blinds. So the action begins with a raise from the player in second position. Now it's a minimum raise, so he makes it 1,300. And we're at a full table. This player has about the same size stack that we have, he's got us barely covered. And it folds all the way back to us in the big blind, holding the Jack of Diamonds and Nine of Clubs. So Jack Nine offsuit in the big blind. I think if you fold this hand, you are playing a little too tight. This is not a great hand, but it's certainly not hopeless. But more importantly, there is now 2,995 in the pot. And it only costs us another 650 to see the flop. So we're just we're getting ridiculous pot odds here, and we need to make the call, getting 4.6 to one. So we're going to see a, a flop from out of position, holding Jack nine, and that flop is the eight of clubs, five of spades, and four of diamonds. Now before we decide what to do on this flop, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about our opponent. Now, I'm not looking at his HUD stats because it wasn't someone that I had a lot of numbers on. Um, his HUD stats, you know, didn't really tell us that much. But what I had noticed in this particular tournament was that he seems to like to make laydowns. So if he is not playing perfect GTO robot style, it appears to me that his mistake if he makes one a lot, is that he folds too often. Now, I think a lot of players are in this camp. It's hard to call all the way down with a marginal hand, and it's also hard to have a really big hand. So against players like this, part of my reason for calling with Jack-9, I mean, the main reason is I'm getting such great price to at least see a flop. But if I continue in this pot, then part of my reason for doing so is that I feel like there may come certain scare cards that would allow me to bluff this opponent later if I don't make a pair or better to beat him. So on this board, I have two live over cards. Well, I have two over cards. We can't say if they're live or not, but we know we have two over cards to the board. Uh, we have a backdoor straight draw and two over cards. So that's not a lot. For me, I always want to check in this spot. I don't really have a leading out range heads up when I'm out of position. I pretty much will always check to the razor. I want to say always, but that's why I say pretty much always because I'm sure there is some scenario where I would bet out. Uh, but yeah, generally you want to check to the razor. And if he makes a healthy bet here, like half the pot or more, 
I think it's fine to just go ahead and fold the jack nine. We don't have a backdoor flush draw. We, we just, we don't have that much going on. But what happens is our opponent bets only 1,236 into the 3645 pot. So instead of a half pot bet that I think I could comfortably fold to, he makes a one third of the pot bet, which, you know, with my six outs, assuming that they are at least sometimes live, it's a much more defensible call for me. I could also go for the check raise and then continue bluffing on, if he calls, continue bluffing on any card that gives me a straight draw. And there are, you know, some cards that would do that. A 10 would give us an open ender. A king would give us uh, a gut shot. A seven would give us a gut shot. Of course, a jack or a nine would give us a pair. So check raising here is certainly a valid play. But I made the decision to just call. And the plan should be to sometimes try to take this away if the run out appears scary. Now, what would be scary to this opponent? Well, to me, like if a six or a seven hits, then he should be way more afraid of my hand than I should be afraid of his. Players like this aren't going to show up with like too many straights on a 8-7-5-4 board. But me having been in the big blind and having gotten such a great price, I could easily have those hands. So I think that cards like that would give us a pretty distinct range advantage on this board. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to see. So I do make the call and we see a turn. And the turn comes the deuce of clubs. So now there are two clubs on the board and six over a 6,100-ish in the pot. And my stack is the effective stack at 38.4. Our opponent has just a few thousand more than that. So now this card is interesting. I could lead this card if I want to because one straight, actually two straights did get there. The ace tray and the six tray got there. So... Our opponent cannot like this deuce of clubs. It's not the card that he was hoping to see if he has something like pocket tens, pocket jacks, or even pocket aces. I'm not necessarily going to try to bluff him off of that hand because a lot of people will put that. If they have over pairs in their bluff calling range, they tend to use the aces and kings and be a little bit more willing to fold the nines, tens, jacks for obvious reasons. So it's not that I'm trying to bluff him off of pocket aces although he will occasionally fold that hand if this board gets any uglier so we could lead here and sometimes take it down maybe always take it down when he has just two over cards with a hand like king jack uh, but instead i decide to check again and possibly check raise but mostly check fold we check and our opponent checks behind which basically lets us know He's trying to play pot control. So he doesn't have... But really the only available monsters that are even in his range are Ace-3 suited, if that's even in his range, raising from second position. It's not in everyone's. And then uh, he doesn't have pocket eights, or he would certainly have continued betting to protect his hand against all the draws that are starting to show up against my very wide big blind calling range. So with all that in mind... It feels like he's got one pair. So it's probably, at best, he has one pair. So he's probably got something like, you know, maybe nines through aces and then 
uh, of course, quite a bit of two overcard hands, like ace-king, king-jack, king-queen, things like that. So, we're looking for, I'd still love to see a six, or a seven, a nine, a jack, a ten, any of those cards that are kind of like right in that sweet spot in the middle. I would love to see one of those cards because they give me the best bluffing opportunities. Instead, it's the Queen of Clubs, which is the third club. So now we have a final board of 8-5-4, deuce, queen, with backdoor clubs coming in. Now we have the nine of clubs in our hand. Also, our opponent didn't bet the turn. So it's extremely unlikely with that information that this opponent has a flush. Now, it might be hard for us to represent a flush because it's a backdoor flush. But when you just add one more thing for your opponent to worry about, that makes bluffing that much more profitable in these situations. So we can't check again unless we just want to give up, which giving up is okay. I mean, I certainly do give up on my share of hands. And this wasn't exactly one of my favorite cards to bluff on because he certainly has queens in his range, like ace, queen, king, queen. Like he's going to have a queen some of the time. Given the fact that we have a club and given the fact that our opponent slowed down on the turn and given, of course, the fact that him slowing down on the turn makes it less likely he has an overpair to that queen and it's more likely if he has a pair that it's something like nines, tens, or jacks. I mean, of course, if he makes a set of queens, we're about to lose our bluff, of course. It feels like a good spot to bluff. Now, this is a bluff with very few blockers. I mean, a lot of you would bluff if you had an ace to block ace three or a seven to block seven six. Uh, I, the only type of blocker I have is the nine of clubs with my jack nine offsuit. So it's not exactly a perfect blocker situation. And as we learned from all of our TPE coaches, notably Andrew Brokus, who always says, when you're bluffing, the cards that you are holding are extremely important, which is another way of saying, do I have blockers or not? I mean, I would basically say I barely have anything that could even qualify as a blocker. So th for me, this is more of an exploitative decision when I go ahead and fire my uh, bluff at the end. And I just bet half the pot. There's no reason to bet more than that. I'm not that polarized. I could have just a queen myself. I could have an eight that I now think is good. You know, there are lots of hands that aren't that very, very strong or very, very weak. So I'm less polarized, so I don't need to size up as much as if I am polarized. So I just make a normal looking half the pot river bet. And I expect to win when my opponent doesn't have a pair of queens or better, which is going to be, I think, the vast majority of the time. And sure enough, I do take it down. And it was, to me, a good demonstration of kind of a bread and butter situation. So many of us know that we should call with a wide range from the big blind when facing a min raise open and no other opponents. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty basic at this point. You know, you're getting 4.6 to 1. So, you know, you can call with virtually any two cards, although many of us tighten up a little beyond that and might just go ahead and fold like the Jack Deuce, Jack 3, <laughs> 10, 5, you know, those kind of hands. But even if you told me you always call with those hands, that's fine. But I think that part of the strategy needs to be that you also find bluffs in unusual places like I think I did with with this hand. Let me know what you guys think. It's always fun to hear from you. 
I love when you guys disagree with me. And of course, I love it even more when you don't. Uh, please use Twitter for all of that, at Clayton Comic. And if you're still looking for a poker website to get top-notch training from some of the best teachers and coaches in the Western world, look no further than tournamentpokeredge.com. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody, everybody knows she can't read a mouth. Oh, the